Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord for us. Good morning, church. Uh, I have a special privilege of of preaching this morning, and I count it as a privilege. I'm excited for it. Uh, my name is Lakota. In case you don't know me, most of you probably do. Uh, but I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, I've been serving here as the youth leader for uh, past since this past July now. Uh, so it's been about 10 months, uh, which is crazy to think that it's already been that long. Um, but I've absolutely loved it so far. Uh, I count it as a, a privilege to get to know our high schoolers and to be a part of their lives and Whenever anybody asks me about youth ministry, I always, I always tell them I have a good group, I have a good group of youth, um, and I'm proud of all of them. But yeah, I've been, I've been serving here for the past 10 months, um, but before I started serving here, I was at uh, a small little Bible college near Columbus called Rosedale Bible College. Um, and most of you are probably familiar with, with Rosedale. Um, it's a two-year Bible college that's affiliated with our church's conference um, and it's not your typical college um, because it's only made up of about 80 students on average. Uh, so it's really small, uh, but that's part of what makes the college so special. You get to make connections um, with all of your classmates, uh, whether, you, whether you really want to or not. And you learn and you grow together. Uh, it's just a really, really special experience. Um, but the whole purpose and the whole goal of Rosedale, uh, it, their, their motto, their story, their main statement is to raise kingdom workers, to raise up young people who understand the value of the local church and are committed to making the kingdom of God their top priority. Um, so that no matter what they do, whether it's business or agriculture or teaching or ministry, whatever it is, it's done in the service of the kingdom of God. Uh, and so I got to spend two years there uh, learning about Jesus and his kingdom that he established here on earth. And we got to we got to dive in and ask questions about the church, like what, why is it that we do what we do? Why, what, what's the purpose of the church? What unites us? Um, and so when John introduced this, this series to me, um, this One Another series, I'm, I was really excited. Um, it's a series about the value of unity uh, that kind of dives into the purpose of the church. Um, and so it's, ex- ex- sorry, it's exciting for me to talk about these kind of things. Uh, just because it was so central at Rosedale. It was the stuff that we talked about um, for two years. So this stuff is really close to my heart. Um, so this morning we're going to be continuing in the One Another th- series. Uh, and we're going to dive into the purpose of the church. And specifically this morning we are going to dive into Scripture's commission for us as believers to teach one another. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, 
Uh, I ask that you please open them to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. And before we start, let's just ask the, word, ask the Lord for, for help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that we get to gather this morning uh, and study your scriptures. I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to um, take what we learned today and to apply it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. And forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. So Colossians is this epistle or letter. It's written by Paul to a church in modern-day Turkey uh, in the Lycus River Valley. Um, So Colossae had been this kind of large, wealthy trade city at one point in its history. But during the days of the Roman Empire, uh, Colossae had slowly shrunk in size and importance as these two sister cities in the River Valley kind of grew. And so by the time that Paul was actually writing to the church of Colossae, uh, the city had shrunk to just this little kind of insignificant market town. So Paul, in many of his epistles that we have collected in the New Testament, uh, he's writing to rather large cities, right? These kind of uh, the the Corinths, the Rome, uh, the Romes, the... Thessalonica's. And so often to these cities, um, he was writing these letters, and they were kind of centers of, of trade and commerce and influence, uh, modern-day L.A. or NYC. But now Paul writes to this small little market town. And so we might be tempted to ask why. Uh, why was Paul wasting his time helping this little church in a little market town? Why didn't we get a second Romans or a third Corinthians? Like, why is Paul writing to these guys? This guy's the, the head honcho in the early church, the, the apostle of apostles. He's writing to this little market town. So, why did he write it? Uh, why did this letter end up in our canon of Scripture? And so the, uh, the question we eventually get to that we have to ask ourselves, is, is there something happening? What, what could possibly be happening in Colossae that would lead Paul to be writing this letter to them? Well, as we read Colossians, we realize that something dangerous had arisen in this small little market town. Something that posed particular danger to the church. Something that needed to be addressed quickly. And so the main purpose that Paul writes to this church is to actually address some sort of mysterious false teaching that had arisen there. Uh, So we don't know exactly what this teaching was, meaning we don't have like a a specific name for it. Um, But we do have a few details that we know about it from the text. So it seems likely that the church 
in Colossae was struggling against some sort of odd mixture of Greek and Jewish philosophy or spirituality that believed that Christians were misled, that Christians were not doing what was necessary if they wanted to be spiritual. They believed that truly spiritual people still had to honor certain Old Testament holidays that had to participate and please these higher spiritual forces. And they also believed that uh, true, true piety or true spirituality could be found through asceticism. And asceticism, if you don't know, is, is when they kind of punish their bodies to extreme measures in pursuit of spirituality. Um, so it's tough to give a specific uh, name to these false teachings because they're just kind of abstract and odd. Um, but in any case, the teaching was gaining traction in Colossae, and much of it was contrary to the teachings of the apostles. So Paul understood this danger, understood that it posed a danger not just to Colossae, but to the church as a whole. And so that's why Paul is writing this letter to this little city of Colossae, because he's desperate to warn believers to be steadfast, to stay wise, to not depart from the teachings that they'd already been given. Because this teaching was dangerous. It was a message that distorted who Jesus was and what he did on the cross. So that's the occasion for the letter. And before we get to our verses for today about teaching one another, I want to briefly kind of summarize what Paul has kind of discussed up to this point in the letter. So let's, let's spend some time doing that. So Paul spends this, this first part of Colossians uh, in response to a church who is confused about false teachings. He spends the first part of his letter simply reminding them of the truth, reminding them of the focal point of their faith. Uh, so listen to this, this description that Paul gives to the Colossians of Christ. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything... He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Paul responds to a false teaching, a false gospel, a false message by reminding the Colossians of the truth. A truth that is absolutely central. That Christ is king and that he's working to restore a chosen people to himself through his cross. So that's kind of the main idea of Paul's opening. But then we get into chapter 2, right? And he starts to explain to the church why they didn't need to listen to the false teachings, right? That explains that because of Christ's work on the cross, you don't need to worry about these Old Testament regulations, of food and drink and festivals because Christ is the fulfillment of these things. Christ, the, those things simply pointed to Christ. So Paul's doing this really good job of kind of systematically shepherding this church through what could possibly be, well, is a really confusing situation. So he first tells them the truth 
and reminds them who Christ is. And then he explains why the false teachings they heard are not true, even though they might appear that way. True-ish, as Jeremy would say. And he also points out in verse 19 of chapter, of, of chapter 2 that the people who spread such teachings have lost connection with the head. The head, of course, being Christ. So to make it simple, uh, Paul, in these first two chapters of Colossians, he's established Christ in his gospel, and then he's also dismantled the false teachings that had arisen. And so now as we enter chapter 3, Paul begins to instruct the church how they should live if they believe this gospel truth about Jesus. Paul is saying to the Colossians, "If if we believe Christ is who he says he is, then this is how we should live. And so finally, we get to our verses here uh, that we're going to be studying for today. So in these verses, Paul aims to, to kind of paint a picture of what a church who follows Jesus should look like. If we really are God's chosen people, then this is, what's God, this is what God's people should pursue. This should be part of their identity as a church. God's people should be compassionate, kind, humble, patient, forgiving. Uh, but most importantly, the people of God should love, which Paul says, binds all of these virtues together, instructs them to be ruled by the peace of Christ, to be thankful. And then we get to verse 16. And Paul suddenly gives this very specific instruction to let the message of Christ Dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And I think this is an important passage for the church. Because in these verses, Paul actually helps us to better understand the purpose of the church and why we gather today as we do. So first of all, I think we need to flush out this kind of general commission to teach one another. What is Paul telling us when he says that we as a church need to teach each other? Is Paul telling us we all need to be Sunday school teachers? Hopefully not. No. It's not what Paul's saying. We're not all gifted to be teachers. We all have different gifts that God has given us, and so not everyone is a teacher in that sense. So what is Paul saying when he asks us to teach one another? seems like Paul is giving a general command for all believers to teach one another. So what does that look like? What does that mean for us? Well, I think to correctly understand what Paul's saying here, we need to understand the context of Paul's letter. We need to go back and see why he's writing it in the first place. Why was Paul writing to the believers in Colossae? Because they were facing false teachings. They were facing teachings that distracted and misled people from who Christ was and what his purpose was. And so much of this letter was written to try to dissuade the Colossians from abandoning what they'd already been taught about Christ, to dissuade them from abandoning the gospel. And so how did Paul respond to this false teaching at the beginning of the letter? He reminds them of the good news. He reminds them who Jesus was and what he came to do. 
He reminds them of the truth that Jesus was not just a special man or a gifted teacher, but God himself wrapped in flesh. That he was God from the very beginning. And that he came in order to establish a new kind of kingdom here on earth, where he is king and we are his people. A people born to serve him and help usher in his kingdom here on earth. And he reminds them that he did not just come to live, but also to die, so that the wrath of God could be poured out on him for our sin. Because Paul says we were once alienated and hostile in mind towards God. But through the blood of Jesus, the church is redeemed. So when Paul tells us to teach one another, primarily, primarily he's telling us to remind each other of the gospel. As Paul does in this very letter. So church, if we want to be a people set apart for God's purposes, to not be swayed by false teachings like the people of Colossae, then we too have a responsibility to remind each other of the gospel, of the gospel message. To remind each other of the truth about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Now, most of us don't face false teachings like the ones mentioned here in this letter. Most of us aren't tempted to pursue extreme asceticism or practice Old Testament holidays. But how many of us are tempted towards the false gospel of self-righteousness? Are tempted to look to our own deeds for our justification instead of Christ. To work for a gift that's already been given to us freely by grace. Or on the flip side, how many of us are tempted to look to God as some sort of vending machine? Like somehow he was created to serve us, to make our lives better. So that when we pray to him, we're simply trying to punch in the right code or the right combination to get what we want. Instead of submitting ourselves to his lordship. MCA, if we want to be a church who's not swayed by every wind of false doctrine, if we want to live as the people of God we're meant to live, we have to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ with everything we have. Amen. It's the foundation of why we do what we do. It's the truth that separates the sheep from the goats. And I think there's this lie that we tell ourselves that the gospel's only for the unsaved. Right? We might not say it, but we kind of think it. And we think, uh, I've heard the gospel before. I've said it's true. I don't really need to be reminded of it. I get the whole spiel about Jesus and the cross. But church, the, the church in Colossae had already heard the gospel. They knew it. And there was no way they didn't because it, there was no way that they were subjecting themselves to the kind of persecution that early Christians faced in that day if they didn't know the gospel and believe it. And yet Paul spends a good chunk of his letter retelling the Colossian church the good news of who Jesus was and what he did. Why? Why does Paul tell them what they already know? Because Paul understood humanity. He understood that like every generation of man that came before, the Colossians were forgetful. The Colossians needed to be reminded of the gospel because humanity is so prone to forget the goodness of God. Just like the people of Israel throwing a party and worshiping a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai just weeks after God had led them out of Egypt as a pillar of fire 
and split the Red Sea in front of them. But they too forgot. Paul understood that just like Israel, the church in Colossae were forgetful people. That they too had the tendency to forget the gospel of Jesus and exchange it for another message. And just like the Colossians, we too are forgetful people. Forgetfulness is not a new phenomenon, believe it or not. It's not something exclusive to the 21st century. It's not just because of our, our phones that we're forgetful, contrary to what my dad might tell you. Humanity has always been forgetful. So how, as the people of God, how do we fight against this, this tendency to forget? How? Well, Paul gives us a simple solution here in Colossians chapter 3. Teach one another. The gospel is something so easy to forget. So Paul has commissioned us to lovingly remind each other of the good news of Jesus. Because the church needs the gospel. Every day we, do, we need to remind ourselves and the people around us that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. And so as we seek to understand the purpose of the church and why we gather the way that we do, this is part of it. Why we gather together corporately as we are this morning. We have an opportunity to teach each other the gospel as well as the other teachings of Scripture. And that's part of the joy about gathering together on a Sunday morning. I wonder how many times, how many of us have felt the pull of the world after having not gathered corporately with other believers for a couple weeks. I've been there. And I think we feel that pull from the world because Christ has given us a fellowship that reminds each other of the gospel. And so we need to not take that for granted. We need to stay connected to the people of God. Also, I'd like to note that in this passage here in Colossians, that Paul instructs the church, the church to teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and songs. So we sing together every Sunday morning, and I wonder how often we've stopped and we've asked ourselves, like, why, why do we do that? And I think it's possible, and I've been guilty of this myself, that we often kind of think of worship as uh, this time that we really need to emotionally connect with God. That uh, when we worship, we have to really strive to be happy and wake up and act like we have it all together before God. Right? We kind of have this goal of getting this emotional experience. But that doesn't really seem to be the, the motive behind Paul or the goal behind Paul telling us to sing songs of worship together corporately. Because let's be honest, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, most of us stayed up too late last night. Uh, you maybe didn't get your coffee. Uh, the only emotion you feel right now is tired, right? I get it. So it should be a comfort to know that Paul did not tell us to worship together so that we'll reach some sort of emotional high. Now, I want to clarify that. Obviously, emotions are good. They happen in worship. Uh, it's a good thing, and we should enjoy those emotions when they come. Uh, but I think sometimes we can feel discouraged if we don't experience that, that deep, deep emotion that makes us feel like we're more connected to God than we were, you know, 10 minutes before in the parking lot. But instead of that, I think that the two things that Paul really uses to characterize our corporate worship here in Colossians that I believe to be essential is that, for one, it involves thankfulness. 
in our hearts to God, as Paul says. We gather together collectively and express our thankfulness to God through song. We get to thank him for who he is and what he's done and what he's doing. And then secondly, Paul is actually asking us to sing psalms and hymns and songs in order to teach one another. So when when we gather together on a Sunday morning and we sing songs together collectively, it's not just some temporary emotional high that we're seeking, but instead we're actually seeking to use these songs of praise as a means of instruction to the church. And I think that part of the reason that we use music is because music is so easy to memorize and remember. I think God designed it this way. Because how much easier is it to to memorize something when you put music to it? Music helps things stick. And we can carry it with us throughout the week. So so through the singing of music, we actually have an opportunity to fulfill this call to teach one another. Uh, The church is actually called to use music to teach the body of Christ. And so that's also why what we sing actually matters. That's why the songs that we sing need to be filled with truth. We should examine the worship songs that we download on our phones. We should ex- examine those just as closely as the sermons that we, that we take in and we sit under. Because they're both forms of teaching. So I think we need to be discerning about the messages in our music. But yes, it's, our worship time is actually a time of teaching. And so when we raise our voices together as the body of Christ, we get to remind each other of the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so when we worship together in song, remember that. It's not just some sort of temporary emotional high. Corporate worship is an opportunity to teach the people in the chair beside us. It's an opportunity to teach our children. And it's an opportunity to teach ourselves. Because like I said earlier... We're people that are prone to forget. And so when we gather together and we worship, it's another opportunity to remember. So church, let's fulfill this call to teach one another. Let's take the instruction seriously. And let's take this whole series seriously. Because this whole series, this time of the Sunday School Shuffle, it all centers on asking ourselves what it really means to be the church we live in a culture that is, that is me-centric, that's consumeristic. Our whole lives have become a cycle of buying and selling. Everywhere we go, we see ad after ad after ad. Our phones have ads. Our road signs have ads. Our radios have ads. We've been trained to be consumers in a world full of products. And the sad thing is, the sad reality is, is that the church... Uh, the culture of consumerism has actually weaved its way into the people of God in the American church so that church is simply production. And we come to a building on Sunday mornings and we sit in a chair and we consume a product the same way we watch a movie. And so because of that, church has become all about finding the place with the best worship time and the best preaching and the best auditorium and the best facility. And it's not wrong to want those things. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that church should not just be some sort of product that we consume on Sunday mornings. Because that's how we have it in our minds sometimes. And then we leave the building and we get to just go check it off our to-do list. 
Because that's not what church is. Church is all of us, the people of God, people who've been bought at a price, people who've been ransomed, restored, healed, forgiven. We're the sheep of the good shepherd. And so it's important that we recognize this if we're part of the church. And that means that we're called to participate in it. Church can't just be us walking in on Sunday morning, seeking to be entertained for an hour. This gathering is not about you or your preferences, nor is it about me or my preferences. It's about something else entirely. So I grew up here at MCA. Uh, I've been coming here since I was like four or five. I'm not sure the exact age. Uh, and in that time, I've seen MCA go through many highs and many lows. I've seen MCA change in a variety of ways. Uh, when I first came here, I know we sat in pews. Um, and we had a really ugly color of carpet. Uh, if I remember that. Uh, and the band had that little platform over there on the side um, where they would play the music. I've had three or four different worship pastors. I've had three different youth leaders while I was in youth. And I've had four different head pastors, I think, somewhere in there. Uh, so MCA has seen lots of change. And many of you have been here much, much longer than I have and have seen even more change. And I say this because despite all this change... We're still MCA. Because MCA's identity is not rooted in a building or any one person. We're a church because we collectively are God's people. All of us together are MCA. And so what's really cool about this series that we're doing and the, and the Sunday school shuffle that we're going through is that all of these things help us to remember that MCA is not defined by individuals or a building but that we find our identity as a church, as a collective, as the bride of Christ, the church. That's where we find our identity. So our Sunday mornings are not about personal preferences, and it's not about just sitting in a pew and drinking a product. It's not about being entertained. It's not what church was about. If it was, we could sit at home, and we could watch whatever service we wanted to from the comfort of our living room, right? That's not church. Church is about coming together and celebrating that we're God's people, that we're a people for his own possession, and that even though we were once aliens and foreigners, Christ loved us, and he grafted us in so that we could be part of a holy family. That's why we gather here on Sunday. And church is not confined to our Sunday morning gathering, but church becomes a central aspect of our lives so that everything we do is done in service of the kingdom of God. Whether work or school or sports or vacation, or being at home or camping or whatever it is, we all do it for the glory of the one who loved us enough to die for us. And we live as a people set apart so that when the world looks at MCA, when the world looks at the church, they see a church that encourages one another, that prays for one another, that serves one another, that teaches one another, and that loves one another. And in that, they might see a glimpse of who Christ is and the kind of kingdom that he's come to establish in the hearts of his people. But if we want to be that kind of church, it takes all of us. If you really want to be a part of that church, if you really want to enjoy fellowship, then we can't merely be present. We also have to be active. 
And so I invite you to ask yourself, how has God gifted me? What talents has he given me? And then ask, how can I use these talents to serve the church, to serve the people around me? Because each of us has a purpose here. Each of us has been placed here for a reason. And so I invite you to find that reason. Finally, as we talk about church, as we talk about why we gather, I'd like us to remember one more reason that we do what we do. Why we sing songs, why we get together in core groups. Why we get up at 8 o'clock on a weekend morning when we could sleep in. Because since the Garden of Eden, God has been working to restore humanity back to himself. In the garden, we dwelt in the very presence of God. But because of sin, we had to be separated from our creator. So ever since God has been working to bring humanity back into his presence, through Christ, we've we've been made righteous, We've been cleansed of our sin if we put our faith in him. But the world we live in is broken and full of sin. When we gather, we represent this, this pocket of holiness in a world that's full of darkness. We get to represent Christ's kingdom in a world of false kings and false rulers. But we also gather out of hope. We gather to remind ourselves of a future reality, a reality that, as the people of God, we need to cling to. And so I'd like to end with a reading from Revelation chapter 21, because when we gather on Sunday mornings, it points us towards another gathering, a future gathering. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, that we get to be instructed by it. And we thank you that we get to gather together as the people of God that we get to gather and we get to worship and we get to remind each other of the gospel, of the good news. So Lord, I pray that you would watch over us as a church, guide us by your spirit, help us to be a people that are set apart for your purposes. And Lord, help us to be a church that teaches one another the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.